to The Tenderness Revolution, a podcast about the stories of kindness, compassion and empathy that play out in our lives, because these deeply moving experiences describe what it means to be human and invite us into a new way of thinking about the world and each other. I'm your host, writer and journalist Yvonne Gavin. And every episode, I'll be asking a new interviewee about a pivotal moment of tenderness that helped shape the course of their life. Today's conversation is with the author, psychotherapist and renowned expert on self-compassion, Michelle Becker. And I have to admit, this conversation was a really special one. I tried not to turn it into a therapy session, but I think it did stray into that sort of territory momentarily. But I do think the things that we talked about were really universal because self-compassion is incredibly simple. But like so many things in life that are profound and important, yet simple, they're only useful when you know how to put them into practice. The first time I ever came across self-compassion was when I was listening to Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast, and he was interviewing Dr. Kristin Neff, who's the pioneer of self-compassion. And she was describing this situation where she was on a plane with her son, who was a toddler at the time, and he was in the middle of having a really big tantrum. Her son has autism, and she was finding the situation really hard and really stressful and worrying a lot about what the other people on the plane were thinking of her. And then she started practicing on that very moment in in that spot, self-compassion, speaking to herself in her head kindly, saying things like, this is really hard. It's hard for me and it's hard for him. And just staying grounded and being really kind And it was so powerful because I have been in that situation so many times. When my children were toddlers, they had tantrums often and often in public spaces. And I'd always hear this voice in my head saying, why does my child have to act like this when other children are so calm and happy and well-behaved? what's wrong with me and what's wrong with my parenting that my children are like this? What have I done wrong? And it was all so destructive and negative and it would always lead to me getting more frustrated and angry and it would always make the situation worse. But this technique that Kristen was describing, it really felt life-changing to me and I really wanted to know more. So I first heard about Michelle Becker last year when I did Dr. Kristin Neff's live online training course in Mindful Self-Compassion. Our course leader knew Michelle well and said that she was really key in teaching the practice, particularly to couples. When I did the course, I just knew that I wanted to do an interview on self-compassion because it really did change my life. I don't think I was aware of just how harshly I spoke to myself in my head until I learned to become aware of it, aware of that voice. Because there's a saying, we create our worlds through our inner dialogue. 
And I really do think that inner voice tends to be harsh in most of us and it's not helpful. In fact, it's the cause of most of our difficult feelings. And all of the research that Dr. Kristin Neff has done, and you can look this up, is really, really interesting. It all says the same thing. It all says that speaking to ourselves in that way, contrary to what you might believe, does not help us. It does not make us more effective, more efficient, or perform better. Michelle goes through the steps of self-compassion practice in this conversation and she leads us through something called a self-compassion break and this is actually in the interview and if you can find a quiet moment whilst you're listening and actually put the training into practice you can feel just how powerful it is. I really do hope this conversation leaves you wanting to find out more about self-compassion I believe it's something that has the potential to have a massive positive impact on the world. Michelle's new book, Compassion for Couples, Building the Skills of Loving Connection, comes out in 2023. So keep an eye out for that and visit her website, wisecompassion.com, for other resources, including what she's teaching. Also, Dr. Kristin Neff's work is definitely worth looking up. She's brilliant too. If you'd like the information about this episode, including links to Michelle's Instagram and website, uh, you can actually sign up to receive our newsletter that includes some other bits and pieces, such as background info about the guests and our tenderness thought for the week. If you'd like to be added, just sign up via the link in our Instagram bio or go to our website. And if this episode resonates with you, It would really mean so much if you shared it with a friend who might really benefit from it too. And also, if you felt like leaving a little review on Apple Podcasts, that would be brilliant because it's definitely the best way to spread the word and grow this idea of tenderness. You can also email or message us via Instagram or Facebook. We always love to hear from you and any support you can give us in this venture It really means so much. So please do listen now and enjoy. And I really hope this episode helps you on your journey towards finding more tenderness in your life. Hi, Michelle. It's lovely to see you. Hi, Yvonne. Lovely to see you as well. Good to be with you. Yeah, it's brilliant to have you here today. Um, I'm really excited um, for our conversation on self-compassion, which is something that's really close to my heart and just such an important thing that I really think is going to help so many of our listeners. But um, I wanted to start off, as I always do, by asking you, Michelle, to share your moment of tenderness with us, because the idea behind the Tenderness Revolution podcast is that Essentially, our lives are made up of all these little stories stitched together. And when we shine a light on scenes where we felt a profound sense of connection to something bigger than ourselves, moments where we felt seen or understood or that we had a deeper relationship to the world around us, it's as though we're awakened to a greater sense of meaning and purpose. So please do share your moment with us. I'd be happy to. So my moment of of tenderness actually involved tenderness arising toward myself. 
probably like many of your listeners, that wasn't that wasn't a, an area I had developed, you know. So uh, the setting is that I was on a retreat uh, back on the east coast of the U.S. and uh, the weather had changed. We had had a couple of days of hot, hot, hot weather. And then it changed overnight to very cold weather, as it sometimes does on the east coast of the U.S. And we were in silence. And so on a retreat, you show up very early in the morning and until late in the evening, you're in silence. And it's sitting, walking, sitting, walking, um, back eating somewhere in there, too. So I showed up in this retreat hall. I was very tired. I had uh, had some, I was jostled around. I'd had some trouble with my lodging before that and trouble sleeping overnight. And I was very tired and I was very cold. It was very cold out. And I show up in this retreat hall early in the morning, ready to sit and meditate. And there are a couple of hundred people in this retreat. And I look for the props, the things to make myself a little more comfortable. I was having actually quite a lot of pain in my hip at that time. And uh, so I went to look for props, something to put under my knee to kind of prop it up and make me a little less uncomfortable. I couldn't actually get to comfortable. And the only thing that was left were a couple of blankets. And so I grabbed a blanket and I took it back to my seat. And I, you know, carefully folded it up, rolled it up and stuck it under my knee. And it helped, it did help a little bit. And just as the meditation was going to start, this woman makes a beeline for me. Now I'm sitting, I like to be kind of in the middle of things. I don't like to be up front. I don't like to be in the back. So I'm kind of in the middle of things. This woman comes from the back of the room, makes a beeline for me. And even though we're in silence, I'm in silence, she comes straight up to me and she says that she wants my blanket. Oh. And, you know, I was kind of shocked, frankly. I was a little stunned. Like, first of all, she's talking to me and we're in silence. And uh, so it was jarring. And, and then, like, why me? There are hundreds of people in this hall. Why me? You know, yeah. <laughs> and I need my blanket, you know? But she was having none of it. She was absolutely not going to go away without my blanket. She showed up in a little sort of strappy sundress. And I'm sure she was cold. And I didn't want her to be cold. But I also didn't want my knee to hurt. And so, or my hip to hurt. So I gave her the blanket. And then as I sat in, then the bell rang and the meditation started. And as I uh, turned toward the pain I was experiencing as many of your, um, as you do in a meditation mm. retreat, I really started to notice the suffering that was happening for me, the suffering that was happening in that moment, but also what it caught in my past where I hadn't felt seen and I hadn't felt appreciated. And, and there were all these demands always to like take care of other people and to sacrifice sacrifice myself to do that. And a tenderness arose inside of me, like a, oh, that's hard. You know, Mm -hmm. like, that's hard. This has been your life experience. That's hard. And I opened to the pain I was experiencing the physical pain. Yes, but also the emotional pain, you know, the pain of having had this experience in this moment and all that it caught. And I found, a you know, just a great tenderness and a a, a solidness of a like 
no matter who else doesn't see you, no matter who else doesn't stand up for you or take care of you, I will be there for you, Michelle, you know? So this self-compassion really arose in a very powerful, very strong way. And I found myself for the next couple of weeks, as I was, you know, going about my day saying to myself, what would you like for lunch, Michelle? You know, what, what Mm -hmm. would you like to do now? And really actually considering myself as a person and my own needs, including myself in my circle of compassion. And the funny thing is, Yvonne, that uh, it not only created this really strong, solid sense of self-compassion in me, but it also created more tenderness toward others. So this woman with whom I was quite irritated (laughs) to begin with, you know, I really, the more I met myself with tenderness and compassion, the more I softened to her as well. She was just a woman who was cold and was trying to take care of herself. And I really didn't want her to be cold either. So the, that's my moment of tenderness, you know, how self-compassion arose for me and then really how it's impacted how I am with others as well. Oh my goodness. That is so beautiful and so powerful. I think to hear that almost like the, the stream of consciousness that you went through, it's really amazing that you came to that, that, that tenderness Mm -hmm. and that self-compassion I think it's really hard for lots of people to to do that and to allow that. Yeah. And I think there's like that second arrowing that sort of even if that thought comes up, it's like, well, no, 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 because, you know, I everybody else needs me or there's things I've got to do and those things have to come first. So there's all these other thoughts that kind of, um, you know, that intercept that, you know, that. Right maybe that sort of slight crack of light, you know, that slight sort of, could it be that I just need to, to rest for five minutes, you know, or, or breathe? Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it's, it's so big that it's so necessary um, that once you learn that it's crucial and it's not a selfish thing, then you do become better. You become a better human and you have more compassion and you it's almost like you're able to see things more fully because you're not so caught up in the cycle of pain Mm -hmm. it's really interesting right and then it's really compassion is really just a state of of being it it also involves action but it's a state that we're in right a a state Mm -hmm. of being compassion and so whether it's compassion uh turned outward toward others or whether it's compassion toward, turned inward toward ourselves, in other words, self-compassion, it's the same thing. So the, the more we practice self-compassion, it doesn't exclude others. It puts us in that state ready to be compassionate and turn the compassion, the lens, the focus of compassion, whichever direction it's needed, out here to this person, in here to this person, you know? Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it's as though the circle begins within and then it extends outwards yeah I think that's yeah. that's true that's a beautiful way of putting it um so some of our listeners they may have heard of of Dr Kristen Neff who's an academic a, a renowned expert on self-compassion and she's the author of a number of books on the practice I know that you've worked with Kristen on developing the training in mindful self-compassion um which I did myself last year and um you came 
to the practice though in a different way didn't you because you're actually your background is in therapy could right. you tell us about your journey because I have read about you in your practice and how it started to come into your work that you were doing with couples and with individuals well it's it's uh, it's an interesting story at least it's interesting to me um <laughs> You know, I tend to come at things from an inner experience and then I learn the, the uh, you know, the, the theories around it and, uh -huh. and such. And, and so when I was, a, you know, I'm a marriage and family therapist, licensed marriage and family therapist. And when I was doing some continuing education for that, I found mindfulness. And uh, when I found mindfulness and they described what mindfulness was, I thought, oh, Oh, I know what that is. That's what happens when I practice yoga like that. There's a name. There's a name for that thing that happens when I'm practicing yoga. Oh, it's mindfulness, you know? So I started to practice mindfulness. And then, you know, here I am on this retreat, a mindfulness retreat, which involves turning to things as they are right. And including when you're in pain. So not turning away from the pain, but turning toward it. Uh, and this self-compassion arises. And then shortly after that, and I was, beginning to teach, I was early in my teaching um, mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR. When I found this program, uh, this mindful self-compassion program that Chris Germer and Kristen Neff had developed, and I went on a five-day intensive, and uh, they said, you know, would you teach for us? Because they could tell that I had already experienced it, right? So I'm bringing something different to it, right? And so, you know, would you begin to teach for us? And so I began to teach for them and uh, I invited my colleague, uh, Steve Hickman to join us, who, with whom I was working at the Center for Mindfulness in UC San Diego. And then the four of us developed the teacher training, the Mindful Self-Compassion teacher training. And we began to teach teachers how to teach that as well. Right, right. Um, yeah. And, and then at, on one of the teacher trainings, actually, we, uh, we often have a um, time where we sit with participants and talk about particular topics. And this topic was on couples. How would you do compassion in couples? And somebody asked the question, I said, well, you know, in session one, I would do this and session two, I would do that and session three. And then I thought, you know, somebody should do that. Like, maybe I should do that. And so I talked with uh, Chris and Kristen about it. And with their blessing, they said, yeah, go for it. So I developed the Compassion for Couples program, which is, you know, how do we bring compassion into our relationships, especially oh. our primary relationship? Yeah. Yeah. I'd really like to talk to you about that. <laughs> I want to get to that in a bit. Um, but before we sort of talk about what self-compassion actually is and how we can go about it. I wanted to just talk about why it's so important and so needed, um, especially right now in the world. And I know that Kristen Neff has done a really famous TED talk on the difference between self-esteem and self-compassion. And I think that really speaks to the deep problems that are caused by this intensely competitive society that we live in which puts so much emphasis on comparison and always leads to this feeling of falling short you know in your career in your appearance in your relationships and I think what happens is the truth of what actually makes us happy becomes lost yeah. in this mess um which is like a mess of well if everyone else is doing it then we kind of don't almost know what we want 
So it would be great if you could say something about this distinction between self-compassion and self-esteem, because there's been loads of research um, sort of done around it, hasn't there? Yeah, well, and I just, I I will, I'd be happy to. And before I do, I want to point out, I appreciate what you're saying. And there's this other piece that we don't often talk about, which is one of the problems in our culture is this a sense of rugged individualism Mm. that we forget that we're connected. We forget that we're stronger together. We forget that we, that we belong to each other and that our actions impact others and other people's actions impact us. So when you're talking about this kind of competitive culture, where it's I versus I, uh, you're set up for problems versus a culture that experiences things like Ubuntu, right? Where they're really heightened, there's a heightened awareness of the interconnection, the interdependence, right? And how uh, we impact and affect each other. So just, you know, wanted to notice that out loud too. Yeah, and I love that. That's an African um, word and an African concept. I really hope to sort of go into that in another episode. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you would have a lot to say about that. I'd be interested in hearing it. So I'll have to tune in for that episode. Um, But in terms of the self-compassion versus self-esteem, the issue is not, uh, you know, self-esteem is not a bad thing to have. It's It's a good thing to have. The issue is how we get there. So it's that social comparison that you're talking about that is the uh, that that is the problem with with this with self-esteem. Yeah. So we're comparing ourselves to others, and the truth of it is, who wants to come out below average in that comparison? None of us, right? But if you do the math, we can't be the best at everything. You know, we, we, we just can't be the best at everything. Somebody's going to be the best and it's not always going to be us. So when we're in a mode of self, uh, self-esteem and we're looking, how good am I? And we don't stack up favorably. We're not you know, above average, at least it's painful. Mm. And there's not, there's nothing there for us, right? There's nothing to actually help us with that pain. Self-esteem has deserted us. We can only feel good when we're above average. But self-compassion, self-compassion says, I care about you. I'm here for you, right? So precisely in those moments when we've failed, when we feel inadequate, when we're not measuring up, self-compassion comes in and saves the day. Self-compassion says, oh, I'm so sorry. It is painful to fail. And you're not alone. This is part of the shared human condition. We all fail from time to time. None of us is successful at everything. And then uh, offers us some soothing, some comfort, whether that's a, a kind touch or whether that is um, some, some kind and accepting words like, you know, it's okay, you'll get that, you'll do, you'll get better at it, keep practicing or whatever it might be, you know? Absolutely. I really, I think that's so well put. And I think that's the thing when you're in the middle of that feeling of, I just can't measure up. I think the common humanity part is so useful as well as the the self-kindness, you know, we're all, we're, you know, actually we're all human. We're all connected and we're all, we all have good things that we're really good at and things we're not so good at. And, and we're all different and seeing the complexity in everyone and the wholeness in everyone, I think, that's actually a really important part of it, isn't it? And that, that's what makes it 
such a powerful practice, I think. Yeah. And how normal it is actually um, to, to have both strengths and areas of struggle or, or, or growth edges, you know, yeah, that's normal. That's such how we're relief. wired as human such beings. Relief why, why would it be any different for me? You know, yeah. <laughs> definitely. I think sort of as a parent, I've, I've come up against this a few times, especially with my teenager. And sort of, I remember her saying things like, you know, why is it that this girl, you know, she's so good at sport and you know she's really clever and you know she's got loads of friends and it's just not fair you know I think yeah I think it's 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 so difficult sometimes as a parent to respond because first of all you don't want to see them struggling you don't want them to feel bad but then you you kind of feel a bit like I don't know what to say because obviously you want you want your child to be confident and you want to tell them that they are really good at all of those things too and point out all their strengths but I think it's also good to say you know we're we're all different and it's normal to find it hard you know if you're in that situation and you feel you don't measure up but that's I don't think that's something that people often do say right I think you're right that people don't often say that. And also they forget that, that there's this love piece that is really healing and really important that this piece that says, you know what, even when you don't feel like you're the smartest or you're the best at sport or whatever else, it's okay because I love you just as you are. Mm. You don't have to be good at sport. You don't have to be, you know, you're my daughter and I love you and I will always care about you, you know? And like, that's a much stronger message than saying, uh, oh, you are good at sport. You're, maybe yeah. you're not good at soccer, but you're good yeah. at volleyball. You know what I mean? And uh, because then that's still in that realm of that social comparison, right? It's still kind of playing in that field. It is, Ra- isn't it? And it's such a strong pull. And I think parents often feel that they're being compared to other parents and that their children are being compared to other children and they're so enmeshed in it. It's can be hard to see outside of it to actually see it for what it is. But yeah, I think that unconditional kind of love and acceptance is, is beautiful. And it, yeah, that's what. Yeah. And then to, and then to point out particular qualities that the child has that you yeah. appreciate, like, you know, I love your kindness or mm-hmm. I love your sense of humor or, you know, particular qualities that are, that are uh, about them yeah. rather than yeah. their accomplishments or their achievements or the way they look or those kinds of things, you know? Definitely. So I would love you to talk us through what self-compassion is and sort of give us a sense of where might be a good place to start with the practice. Okay. So self-compassion really put very simply is just treating ourselves with the same care and kindness as we would treat a good friend when they, uh, when they suffer, when they have a hard time. Right. So it's being able to, most of us actually are kinder to other people than we are to ourselves. So I'm not alone in that, in my story, (laughs) my tenderness story. I'm not alone in that. Um, So it's not required that that we're self-compassionate before we're compassionate to others. But what we think is that 
we, it's hard to sustain being compassionate toward others without a good self-compassion practice. So we need to learn how to include ourselves in our circle of compassion. And we do that basically by practicing uh, these three different components of self-compassion. So Kristen uh, operationalized the definition of self-compassion and said there are three components to it. The first is mindfulness. So mindfulness it, we, is a, we could think of it in terms of a kind of awareness. It's bigger than awareness. It's really a, a way of being in the present moment. But if we don't, if we're not aware of what's happening, we won't be able to offer ourselves compassion. So uh, if we're not aware we're suffering, there's a problem. So I think of each of these components as along a spectrum and mindfulness sits right in the middle of the spectrum. So on one end of the spectrum, it's, uh, self-compassion versus, as Kristen Neff says, um, rumination, right? We get caught, we see the problem and our whole field of vision narrows down to that one little problem and we're just stuck in it. We're turning it over and over and over in our minds, right? So self-compassion versus over-identification or rumination. But the other end of it is a lot of us don't even notice when we ourselves are having a hard time. So self-compassion notices. It says, you know what? I see it. I see it. I see that it's painful. It allows us to be with it as it is. Doesn't make it bigger than it is and go into rumination. Doesn't make it smaller than it is and pushes away. But it says, ah, this is painful. So that's the mindfulness piece. Then the second piece of it is common humanity. So common humanity says by virtue of being a human being, uh, we are going to struggle with certain things in life. This is a normal part of life. We're not alone with it. I like to, uh, Kristen talks about common humanity versus isolation. It's just me. I'm the only one who's suffering. Mm. You know, I'm the only one who isn't good at sport or I'm the only one who failed the test or whatever it is. Um, but really when we broaden things out a little bit, we're not the only one. This is the nature of being a human being, right? Mm. So uh, I like to think of common humanity as along a spectrum as well. And this spectrum is one of belonging. So when we say it's just me, we've fallen out of belonging. We've forgotten that actually we belong to this shared human condition. But on the other end of the spectrum, we can focus so much on other people. That person has a lot more suffering than I do. So I'll put all my attention there and we forget to include ourselves. So that end of the spectrum is it's just others. So for me, common humanity sits right in the middle of the spectrum and it says, um, by virtue of being a human being, we all matter, we all belong. Mm -hmm. So when we, when it comes to self-compassion, we need to learn as I needed to, to include ourselves in our, in our circle of compassion. Any given time, sure, maybe that person needs more of my attention or maybe I need more of my attention, but over time, everybody uh, needs to belong, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then the third piece of self-compassion is kindness and kindness toward ourselves. So Kristen talks about that as kindness versus uh, self-criticism or self-judgment. And that's true. You know, we know that's pretty cold. When we get into that harsh self-criticism, we know that we're actually not being kind to ourselves. But the other end of the spectrum, so I think of kindness as along a spectrum of maybe warmth, right? So that's a cool end of the spectrum. But the other end of the spectrum, I think of it as self-indulgence. 
where maybe we're offering ourselves a lot of warmth, but it isn't actually kind. So maybe, uh, you know, I have, I must admit, I can get caught in binge watching Netflix, you know, there's a certain amount of that that's healthy. And then there's a certain amount of that that's self-indulgent because, you know, then I'm not tending to the things I need to tend to, right? And so that isn't the kindest thing for me to do. For some people, it's a substance like alcohol or food, right? There are lots of different ways that we can be self-indulgent. And even though it may feel good in the moment, it's harmful for us. And therefore it isn't really kind. So kindness sits right in the middle and it's concerned with what's helpful for us uh, in this moment and what's helpful for us in the long run. So when we put all those three things together, when we uh, open to our suffering with mindfulness, we see that this is just part of being a human being, that we belong to the shared human condition and we're not alone with it. Um, and we then allow that to soften our hearts and we meet ourselves with support, with understanding, with kindness, with some kind words like, it's okay, you'll get through this. Everybody faces this sometimes. It's hard right now. Everybody goes through this from time to time. It's okay. I'm here for you, right? Then we've moved into self-compassion. So in true self-compassion, all those three components are there simultaneously. None of them are missing. Yeah. I know you've, you've just described it so clearly. And I, I think that's why it's such a powerful uh, practice because of those three parts. And I think it's, it's also really accessible. Um, but one thing I just wanted to ask you about there that just came to mind was how, um, how to distinguish when it comes to self-kindness. I think that can be maybe the trickiest part for people to um to really kind of get to grips with and um it makes me think a bit about um people who maybe consider that they are being kind to themselves when they're not so that's the first thing so when you're describing behaviors that actually aren't good for you um, and it can be difficult for people to see that they think they're doing something that feels good, but actually it's not, it's not actually benefiting them. And the other thing is in terms of self-kindness, um, when somebody maybe because of past experiences or, or, you know, stories that they have that they've picked up, you know, in their life uh, from childhood or from other experiences that make them feel a bit of a victim. And they often, you know, they often put experience other people's actions as wounding to them. So they think they're being kind to themselves by cutting people off or turning away from situations. And actually they're not acting kind towards themselves by doing that, but they feel they are, it's sort of a protection mechanism I wonder if some people might think that that's a form of self-kindness but actually it's not and I think it can be difficult to see sometimes mm -hmm. yeah and it's it's difficult sometimes to discern when is that actually self-kindness and when is it not you know so um it when we think of compassion compassion it's concerned with the prevention and alleviation of harm so if somebody is actually harming us 
you know, if it's a harmful relationship, then the compassionate thing to do, not just the self-compassionate thing to do, but also the compassionate thing to do is to set a limit and not to participate in that harm because mm-hmm. it, uh, you know, that's better for us. And it's also better for the other person because allowing somebody else to continue harming us is not actually good for them. Mm-hmm. You know, at some point they're going to have to reckon with the fact that they've harmed us. So, uh, so there are times where setting a limit is, is, is very self-compassionate. And we would call that more the strong, I would call it the strong side of compassion or self-compassion. But you're right, there are also these other times where, um, where we, we kind of falsely set these limits or these boundaries in an effort to protect ourselves. But really what we're doing is cutting ourselves off, cutting ourselves off, cutting ourselves off, right? Mm -hmm. And our world is becoming smaller and smaller and smaller rather than actually mindfully turning toward the difficulty and seeing what we can do about communicating our needs or uh, working things out. So it can be a little tricky sometimes to know when and how to, uh, to do that. Uh, one of the things that people sometimes get caught in, in when they're practicing self-compassion is people can become so focused on their own pain mm. that they forget to notice and understand that the other people they're interacting with are also coming from a place of pain, mm. right? In fact, that's one of the things that I really love in the Compassion for Couples program. One of the things we try to do is see our partner's behavior as a reflection of their state of being. In other words, if they're caught in a um, reactive behavior, it's a sign that they're in their threat defense system. Mm -hmm. And even if they're criticizing me, for example, actually my partner's not very critical at all, but uh, you know, if that's, if they're, if I'm being criticized or they're withdrawing or one of those things, it's not about that. They don't love me or they don't care about me or I don't matter, which is the way most of us take it. Mm. It's really about, can I actually see that person as a person who is in this moment suffering? And when we do that, Mm. there's some relief. Mm. So, um, I know that's what comes to me as you're talking about this kind of where we can be so focused on our own pain and kind of cocoon, Mm. it isn't actually helpful. Mm. So we need to, that's where the common humanity piece comes in and we say, okay, wait a minute. I'm not the only person in this situation. Mm. There's somebody else here too. And I know what it feels. I know that I don't always behave, um, on my best behavior when I'm in my threat defense system. Okay. This person could they also be in their threat defense system? Mm. Maybe this is not their best side either. Maybe this is part of the shared human condition for them. You know, so helpful. I'm, I'm when you're describing that, I'm thinking, you know, of the mindfulness part where you can kind of have this expansive awareness. So that kind of stepping back rather than getting pulled in to the interaction and sort of see what's going on for maybe yourself yeah. and the other person, but also that common humanity part where I really love Tara Brock, um, the, the meditation teacher. And I've heard her speak about this, this idea of a spacesuit, which I love and how we're all kind of wearing these spacesuits, which are kind of made up of all these difficult, you know, past experiences and these difficult emotions that we're carrying them around. And if you can almost visualize that and see that someone else is responding because of of that because of the spacesuit that's kind of weighing them down it yes. makes it it's easier to have that compassion absolutely uh, beautifully said yeah 
One of the oh, things- that's their spacesuit. Right? Yeah. We, we could space. say to ourselves, oh, that's their spacesuit. Yes, that's that's their space not the suit. essence of who they are. It's their spacesuit. You know? Exactly. Yeah. That, that part is right, right underneath, buried underneath. Um, the, the practice of labeling emotions um, was something that I learned on the course. And I thought that was really helpful. So there was this practice of labeling emotions, not being attached to them and also feeling them in the body. And um, they, they together, they were both really powerful for me. I think I was introduced to the phrases, name it and you tame it for the labeling part and then feel it and you heal it for the body part. Yeah. Um, could you talk a little bit about, about this and just explain it? I'm sure you're better at explaining it than me. Well, I think you actually did a lovely job explaining it. <laughs> you know, the, the name it and you tame it piece of it is about what you, we were just talking about, what you were just talking about, which is mindfulness can have this spacious awareness to it. It can broaden out and see the bigger picture, right? Yeah. So we don't get so caught in it. So what happens when we label something like, um, you know, often if, if I'm angry, for example, the instinct might be to say I'm angry, but that's not really who I am. Mm-hmm. That's not my state of being right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could say I could instead think of emotions as visitors, like, like the roomy guest house poem visitors to the guest house, right? They come and they go emotions actually don't stay around very long. They're pretty quick unless we catch on to them and, you know, hold on to them. So instead in the sky, I've heard it described as that. Yeah. Yeah. They're passing clouds in the sky. Right. So rather than saying I'm angry and having anger land here, uh, make its home here, we can say, Oh, anger is here. Mm. Right. Or we can begin to say, Oh, that's loneliness or that's fear, or that's, you know, what, whatever might be happening. And when we do that, we create a little bit of space. Now it's not us and we're not it. There's a little bit of space. Mm. It's uh, just sort of like we were talking about with the other person, noticing the other person is caught. Mm. Everything is not about us. We're not the center of the universe. Right. And so anger is here fear is here, whatever it might be. So labeling it can be really helpful because it helps with that mindfulness piece to see and appreciate what's here, but not to become it. Mm. Um, And then the feel, the feeling it in the body piece that you were talking about is also really important. Our thoughts are so quick. Our minds are so tricky as Paul Gilbert would say, and our minds are so quick. It's really hard to think our way out of things, right? Uh, because as soon as we think one thing, then another thought comes up and argues against it, right? But the body can be a little bit uh, slower. We can work with it. So when we when we can feel, where do we feel that anger in our body, or where do we feel the fear in the body, or the loneliness? You know, maybe it's a lump in the throat, or maybe it's this hollow, achy chest, or maybe the stomach is just tight in a knot, or our shoulders are up at our ears. And then we can start to work with that sensation in the body. It's a little easier to comfort and soothe and heal it. And we, one thing about that is we don't want to do it in a, in an aggressive way, you know, where we're going to, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to stamp it out. No, no. We want to meet it with a kind of softness, with a kind of tenderness, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't, if the shoulders are up here by the ears, we don't, you know, force them down, get down there. We say, oh, you're holding so much tension there. Ah, thank you so much for working so hard for me. And 
you know, I'm just going to invite you to let go of any tension you don't need. You can keep whatever you need, but we can, you know, whatever you don't need. So one way I think about that is um, if I uh, make a fist, you know, you might want to do this with me, Yvonne, just to check it out. Uh, so making a fist, right? And holding that really tight, 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 tight fist. Okay. Now take the other hand and see if you can force that fist open. No, <laughs> no not so much, right? It, okay. Instead, take the other hand and make a soft place for that fist to land. Mm. What's happening in your fist now? It feels like it's going to open. Yeah, it softens a little bit, it releases a little bit. So when we try to force ourselves into something different, we just resist harder and harder, right? But when we meet what's happening with a little softness, a little tenderness, a little support, then we can gradually, as it feels right, we can unfold a little bit. We can let go of the tension and relax. That is so interesting, especially because the next thing I wanted to talk to you about was resistance and <laughs> there you go. Um, because it's sort of, it's, it's really become clear to me that I think resistance and tension are what cause us to feel bad. And it's like, we dig ourselves into these dark holes. We get wrapped up in negative self-talk, but I have been wondering like what's behind the resistance like what's behind this inability to just relax because just relaxing like feels like the answer and just being open but this kind of ability to unconditionally accept things as they are the as is rather than having this idea of the way things should be that seems to be the bit that's causing yeah. the problem and I just wondered if you could speak to that because it's really interesting yeah and actually I would say even a little bit more about uh, resistance which is it really comes down to the fact that as human beings we like certain things and we want more of them and we don't want to let we don't want them to end and we don't like other things and we want less of them and we want them to end right away right so we want to feel good all the time. We don't want to feel bad. So we push away negative experiences and we chase or grasp at or cling on to positive experiences, right? Mm. So really basically what we're resisting is the human condition. What we're resisting is the fact that sometimes pleasant things are going to happen. Sometimes unpleasant things are going to happen, mm. right? Um, and it we get this, like, it shouldn't be this way. And then we tighten up ready for the fight, ready to kind of make it the way that it should be. Uh, but actually we're not right about that. You know, it, even if something has gone wrong and, and it's unfortunate and we don't want it to go wrong, it, it is part of life. Right. So it's expectations and, and stories. Yeah, it's expectations and also just our basic human wiring, you know, mm -hmm. that we're, we're meant to seek things we like, and we're meant to push away. And I suppose at some on, at, on some level, this is important for our survival, right? Mm -hmm. You know, get away from things that might harm us and go toward things that might nurture us that might support us. So it works, a lot of things work really well for our physical survival, but they don't work really well for happiness. And that's one that doesn't work really well for happiness. So, but I like what you were pointing to earlier, which is acceptance and acceptance 
can be really confusing. That's one I think that Mm. people have a lot of confusion about Mm -hmm. because a lot of people think acceptance means I'm okay with it. And I would argue acceptance does not mean I'm okay with it. It doesn't mean I like it. It doesn't mean I'm okay with it. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to work to change it. Mm. I may, it may still be important for me to work to change it. Something's not okay. Maybe I have a health diagnosis, you know, maybe I don't, but uh, you know, maybe there's cancer. Well, I don't want to just accept that I have cancer. I do also want to take steps to uh, see what I can do about it. Right. Mm -hmm. So acceptance doesn't mean we're just, you know, rolling over and saying, oh, well, you know, I give up. Yeah. I give up. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, there is a point sometimes in illness where that, that is the appropriate step. Mm -hmm. Um, But what acceptance to me, what acceptance means is we just drop the fight with it. We, we are, with resistance, we're pushing it away and we're saying it shouldn't be like this. With acceptance, we're saying, you know what? It is like this. Like mm-hmm. it or not, want it to be this way, don't want it to be this way. This is how it is right now. Mm-hmm. And that piece of acceptance, that opening to this is how it is right now, is actually the first step that helps us then, if we do need to go on and do something about it, we can, because we have opened to the reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. Now that we know how it is, now we can decide what we want to, if we want to take action, if we don't, what the proper action is. Mm. So it's sort of like a softening and a kind of a, a seeing, like a fully seeing things, like a being able to actually take in what's there like I've described it as her as the as is like just actually yeah. soften and then really fully see what's there yeah and it is that softening it is that dropping that fight right so the fight gets us all tense and resisting but when we can drop the fight with it and say okay what is it you know what what is it uh, what's here right now and open to it Mm. that's really it it's when we open to the truth mm. of the situation right now that's mm. that's what we're that's what we're accepting we're accepting the truth this is the truth here mm. in this moment then accepting the truth we've softened a little bit because we don't have to fight against it against that being the truth okay it is the truth now what do i want to do and i guess that takes courage as well because there's like a fear in the resistance it's like why why is there this resistance it's because there's a fear of well if i don't then what might happen and then what would that lead to and yeah and i suppose that's why yeah courage is there's that kind of inner courage of can i just just take that leap and actually be open and just be present and just yeah yeah, yeah courage and also trust Mm. You know, trust, because what happens is when we do this over and over and over again, we start to trust mm. that, oh, okay, it's not going to make things worse if I open to how things are. This is actually the path forward. This is actually the path through it, you know, opening to how things are. So we begin, the more we just try, and you don't have to start with the biggest thing in your life, you know, the big overwhelming thing, start with the little things, start with small things, right? And the more we do that, and the more we we discover, oh, okay, so I accept that, you know, whatever the small thing is. Um, and that 
freed me up. It opened me up and gave me some space to decide how I wanted to work with it. And things turned out better in the end than if I just pushed it away. Um, then we start to develop some trust in the process. And mm. that gives us more courage now, because we trust the process, we have the courage toward to turn toward maybe bigger pains, bigger things that are hard for us to accept. Oh, yeah, that's really interesting to, to mention that part of trust. I can see that now. Um, I wanted to ask about backdraft because that was an interesting um, concept that I was introduced to when I did the course yeah. as well. And I think it's partly tied into this, um, the fact that many people do find self-compassion quite hard. I think there's a belief, I've even had people say when I've mentioned self-compassion to them, people have even said, well, but if you start talking to yourself kindly, then you might just become lazy and then you'll never actually do anything. <laughs> so, right. I just wondered if you could talk about that. Well, you, what you're pointing to are, are the blocks to self-compassion yeah. and there are lots of them and the, and the confusions around it. Um, but what I'll, but I'll talk a little bit since you were asking specifically about backdraft, I'll talk a little bit about backdraft because it can be confusing. Um, backdraft is a particular thing. It, it happens when we open the door of our hearts to let compassion in and then we experience a lot of pain and it can be really, really confusing because people think, oh, I offered myself some kind words or a kind touch and I felt worse. I didn't feel better. What's going on? Maybe the problem is compassion. This is not good for me, but let me explain. So as we're going through life, painful things happen and we don't always have the resources to deal with those painful things in the moment they happen. So it's like we scoop up the pain and then we, uh, like, like you throw things in the hall closet, you know, you put it in the hall closet, close the door real fast. Okay. So we do that. We scoop up the pain. We sort of tuck it away. And that's important because it helps us to go on with life, but this happens over and over again. So then we, so now our hearts are full of this pain that we've experienced, but had, didn't have the resources to deal with at the time. Right. So we would come to a self-compassion class. And we open the door of the heart to let compassion in and all this pain comes tumbling out. And we think, whoa, this is a problem. Like this, this mm -hmm. is not okay. You know, uh, maybe compassion's not for me. What it actually means is that compassion, it's actually a sign that compassion is exactly what we need and haven't had enough of yet, but, but there's a skillful way in working with it. We don't want to pull the door wide open and have that experience. We want to titrate. We want to open the door just a little bit, uh, let a little bit of pain out, a little bit of compassion in, and then open a little bit more, open a little bit more, open a little bit more. So there's a way we can work skillfully with it rather than it's not a, a matter of compassion. Self-compassion isn't good for me. It's a matter of, oh, this was too big of a dose. Let me see about a smaller dose. Mm. Just like, you know, if, if you were depressed and you went to uh, the doctor and they put you an antidepressant, they don't start you off at the, at the dose that's a, the effective dose. They start you off at the dose your body can tolerate. And then gradually as your body can tolerate more, they give you a bigger dose until you get to your effective dose. It's the same with self-compassion. Right. We want, we want to start with the dose that is the right dose for us. That's not too big of a dose yet. And then gradually as we feel better and better, we can tolerate a bigger and bigger dose. Yeah, as you adjust to it, yeah. That's really interesting. 
Um, but in terms of this sense of why self-compassion might be hard, I, I did wonder if it was also partly to do with this kind of um, this story that's embedded in sort of especially people from a Christian background that, you know, this idea of original sin and that ultimately like deep down, like maybe I'm just bad. And mm -hmm. if I don't like constantly do good things and, you know, good things for other people and, you know, try and prove myself, then I'm just going to be doomed <laughs> to being a bad person, which is obviously very different to the, the notion of sort of basic goodness, the Christ, that sort of, uh, sorry, Buddhist notion of basic goodness, which I think is, is more part of the self-compassion practice. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I mean, it's interesting because I don't, we don't typically look at others in terms of original sin. We don't typically look at, uh, you know, people on the street, you're, you're bad unless you do enough good things. You know what I mean? Uh, we typically give others more grace than we give ourselves. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, could we include ourselves again, for me, that's common humanity. Could we include ourselves in the circle of compassion? Could we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt the way we might give somebody else the benefit of the doubt? You know, mm. there's a, from a, you know, I'm, my background is more in psychology and from a, and I've worked a lot with all stages of the life cycle. I've worked a lot with, uh, including kids. And uh, what I have found is that when kids go through something difficult, whether it's one big, huge, difficult thing, or whether it's smaller, difficult things that are repeated over and over, uh, they typically end up feeling like it's their fault. And when I ask them about, you know, why is it their fault? They give me one of two responses. They either say it's my fault because I could have done something to prevent it. And I didn't. And I would say, well, what could you have done to prevent it? And they would say, I don't know, or they would give some really ridiculous, you know, answer or the, by far the more common is they say, it's my fault. Why is it your fault? it's my fault because there's something bad or wrong about me. Mm. And, and when I say, well, what is it that's bad or wrong about you? They either say, I don't know, you know, that caused this problem. I don't know, or it's something really ridiculous. So I've asked myself like, <clears throat> why, why do kids add on this extra layer of suffering? And what I realize is that when you're in, when you're in a vulnerable situation as children are, they can't take care of themselves. Uh, it's scary to know the truth that bad things can happen to any of us at any time. That's the truth of, of things, but that is way too scary for a kid, right? So instead they tell themselves that they have some control over it, right? That, that there's something bad or wrong about me because sewn into the, the lining of that story is hope. The hope that if, there's, if, I, if I somehow do something better, then I can prevent bad things from happening. It isn't true. You know, bad, bad things didn't happen because there was something wrong with them. And being better at whatever is not going to protect them from bad things happening. Uh, but it's a really common uh, defense mechanism that we experience as children and we carry into adulthood until we take it out older and wiser and look at it and say, you know, that isn't, that isn't true. You know, mm -hmm. I was once working with a, um, a woman who was, oh, I think she was in her twenties or thirties. 
And she had had quite an abusive childhood. Um, and she was telling me at, at the moment, she was telling me about her mother used to, how her mother used to burn her with cigarettes. Mm. And uh, I was relatively horrified by that as all good human beings would be, yeah. uh, but didn't show the full extent of that. And I, uh, and I said, you know, that's not okay. And she said, well, but it was my fault. It was my mm. fault because I had done something bad. That's why she burned me. Mm. And I said, okay, I'd like you to go to the park and I'd like you to sit and watch the children who are playing there. And I'd like you to, to, um, to point out which two-year-old deserves to be burned by it with a cigarette when she's done something bad. <sighs> and it really shifted things, right? Because we could see, oh, that wouldn't be okay for somebody else. Even if they did do something bad, kids do bad things. Adults do bad things. We all make mistakes. This is part of being human, mm -hmm. but we don't deserve that kind of response, if that makes sense. So... <laughs> That's so, that's really sad, but also so brilliant that she was able to see, to get a perspective on things. Right. By imagining what it would feel like for someone else. So that's right. Or did somebody else, would somebody else deserve that when they were two, even if they threw sand or they uh, talked back to their parents or, you know, whatever the, the bad behavior might've been, you know? Mm. Oh, yeah. So, um, so moving, actually, that story. Um, so I really want to talk to you a little bit now about couples. I'm sure that that would be really helpful for a lot of our listeners, too. Um, so I'm sure you're familiar with Eckhart Tolle. Um, I become really interested in his uh, concept of the pain body. So this, this idea that, you know, we all have a pain body, a bit like Tara Brooks sort of spacesuit uh, that we carry around. And in relationships, it can be triggered by our partner's pain body. So there's like these two pain bodies fighting against each other. And I actually really like that image because I think it's quite mindful because it, you can kind of see the individual, you can see the person as separate from the pain body. And sometimes, you know, I even find, you know, in sort of you know, arguments with my husband, it's like, sometimes it's like, where did we go here? Because there's like us. And then there's this other part that kind of fights against another part of them. I just find it interesting sort of why that happens. And then what can we do about it? Um, I, I mean, I, it's probably a very big answer. <laughs> but I wondered if there was any... <laughs> Any, well, it any is, help that it, you could it isn't, and I think of it in terms of, I often think of it in terms of Paul Gilbert's work in the affect regulation systems, right? So he says, you know, we're wired to have this threat defense system, which is our survival instinct, right? And we, this is probably where the pain body lives, right? We, we've, we uh, fight, flight and freeze live in there, right? So we're going to, you know, attack the other person or defend ourselves or we're gonna flee, we're gonna withdraw, like just, I'm gonna leave the situation mm. or this freeze, which shows up in relationships as placating, you know, this sort of like, oh yes, dear, you know, and um, mm. we agree to things that aren't really true for us. 
And then Paul says, we have this care system or in mindful self-compassion, we, we talk about it as the mammalian caregiving system, this tend and befriend system, how we can comfort and soothe ourselves and each other, right? We're wired that way. We're wired that when a newborn, when a baby cries, we pick it up and we hold it gently and we look at it with a kind gaze and we have these soothing, gentle vocalizations and compassion. Mm. You know, the baby settles, generally mm. speaking, not, not always. <laughs> we're both parents. We know that's not like the magic thing, <laughs> right? If we're lucky, yeah. if there's no complicating factors. And then he talks about that. We have this drive system. We have to get things done. Right. Um, but so what you're talking about when you're talking about these pain bodies is both people are caught in their threat defense system. Mm. Right. And the, the, the amygdala is triggered and our physiology is triggered to protect ourselves. The, the threat defense system is protection and safety seeking. We're both looking for safety, but we're behaving in ways that's making it actually more unsafe. So as soon as we recognize, ah, my pain body is activated, your pain body is activated. As soon as we recognize that, we're no longer, this is a mindfulness piece, we're no longer caught in it. We have some space and we can choose to activate the care system instead. So we can choose to say, you know, I'm really triggered right now. We can say to our partner, I'm really triggered right now. I'm going to go take care of myself, but I care about you and I'm going to come back and we can talk about it, you know, after lunch or whatever it might be. Right. Mm. And, in, and then when we go away, we practice self-compassion, we practice comforting and soothing ourselves so that our physiology uh, returns to baseline. We're no, we're no longer activated. Right. And we're more in a state of care of love. And then we can go back to our partner and we can tend to their pain body and then their physiology recovers and we can share, this was the pain for me. This was the pain for you. We're in a whole different way of being now than when we're just caught in those, the pain bodies, you know, duking it out. Mm. So this idea of stepping away, but not as in, I don't want to hear what you're saying, but as right. in a kind and compassionate way, maybe we just both need to you know, regroup and give ourselves a bit of right. kindness so that we can come back to this with more clarity. Yeah. We don't want to abandon our partner. That's the, that's the flight piece of it, right? I'm out of here. Mm. You know, maybe you say something nasty on the way out, right? That's, that's still the threat defense system. But when the care system kicks in, we can say, you know, because I care about you, because I care about our relationship, I'm going to take a break. Mm. go take care of myself and I'll come back. Mm. And then we say when we're going to come back so that our partners don't feel abandoned. Mm. Yeah, that, I think that's really helpful. Actually, I'm definitely going to try that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have to say Yvonne, it, on my website, uh, wisecompassion.com, there are lots of resources for, um, especially for how do we practice compassion in relationships? Mm. So, mm. yeah. So feel free to check it out. I definitely will. And I recommend any, everyone else listening to have a look there too. Um, there's just one other thing I was thinking of in relation to relationships that this idea that uh, one of the reasons why pain arises is because of these ideas that we have about our partners and what they should be doing or saying or acting. 
And I've been thinking about how it's often these ideas that cause the conflict. So if that isn't being met, those kind of expectations aren't being met. So I've been wondering, should we try and move beyond these kind of ideas or stories and kind of let them go? Or should we be always seeking to interact with people who fit with these ideas? Well, it's interesting because as you're talking about that, I'm thinking that underneath these ideas are the same things we were talking about before, which is I want more of what I like and less of what I don't like, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so underneath these ideas of what the other person should be doing, we can begin to see ourselves and actually become a little bit amused by, by our own, um, our own ideas about the other person. And, you know, they should in my, I've got a a book coming out. It's due out early next year, uh, compassion for couples. And in my book, I tell the story of this couple who get into this huge explosive argument over the fact that he's not loading the dishwasher the way that she wants him to load the dishwasher. Um, And then I take a few pages to really unpack, you know, all these, as you're talking about all these underlying expectations and ideas about what that means that are, that were going on there. And they were frankly wrong. You know, they were just wrong. These ideas about what was going on with the other person, you know, he uh, just wanted to make his wife happy and be close to her. And she just wanted to be seen. And, uh, and he felt very criticized that she didn't like the way he did it. And she just wanted to be seen and heard and understood because she had said before, like, please rinse the dishes before you put them in the dishwasher. But, you know, he thought the dishwasher washes the dishes. So I don't need to do that. Right. And so this, how this thing kind of from some simple little domestic task, domestic Mm -hmm. chore, how it can really cause this huge blow up. up, If we, if we allow, as you're talking about these pain bodies to get activated and make up these stories and kind of take it this way. But if we, if we notice we're caught in it and we pause and we back up and we have some space and we meet, we see where the pain is that's underneath and we meet it with some kindness for ourselves. Then we can see where the partner's pain is and we can meet it with some kindness for them. It changes everything. You know, it, we become actually closer rather than more distant when we've had some upset like that. Yeah, that's so interesting because there's always so many things going on underneath, aren't they? These interactions, you know, all the things that have been stored up, like you were talking about earlier, you know, they all become part of it. And, and then by actually, again, stepping back and seeing, well, you know, there's pain there and something's been yeah. triggered so just let me give them a bit of space and, and then we can, we can maybe talk about it more calmly. Yeah. And then when we talk about it, we mm. then can talk about it from a place of vulnerability rather than this sort of defensive hostile place. Um, you know, we can say like, I was, you know, I was scared when you said that, mm. you know, I was scared. Yeah. And, and now the person is invited to come in rather than when we said, how dare you say that you're such a this and that, you know, uh, there's a cartoon that I saw years ago that I really love. And in the cartoon, it's two porcupines and they're side by side. And one porcupine has its quills laying down and the other porcupine has its quills sticking out. And the one with its quills sticking out is saying to the other one, why don't you ever want to cuddle anymore? <laughs> you know? 
<laughs> and I just find it hilarious because, well, if you put your quills down, maybe I would, but you know, <laughs> that's brilliant. But we yeah. interact with each other in that way. in this kind of, you know, yeah. we've got our prickles up and then we don't, we, I don't understand why our partner doesn't want to come closer. Absolutely. Oh, I love that. Such a clear image. Very, very funny. Sort of coming towards the end of our chat now, sadly. Um, I just wondered if sort of it's one of the last things that we do, if we could maybe share with the listeners what a self-compassion break looks like to give them a bit of um a, almost like a tool that they could use or even that they could share with the child or someone that they think it would really help yeah do you want to do one right now yeah, I'd love that yeah sure okay so in order to do that um we have to have something to work with so the thing to start with would be to think about some situation that's happening in your life right now that's causing you a bit of distress so not the most stressful thing going on something that you can feel a little stress in your body, but it isn't overwhelming, like a three to four on a scale of distress where 10 is really overwhelming. Okay. Mm -hmm. So okay. you got something you want to work with? Mm -hmm. Okay, great. All right. So now opening to that situation in your mind, really picturing it, who was there, who wasn't there, what was said, what wasn't said, letting mindfully opening to the situation. And then recognizing, wow, this is really hard. This is painful for me. Might say, this is a moment of suffering or ouch, or this hurts. This is the mindfulness part, opening to things as they are, recognizing there's pain here. And then remembering that you're not alone with this, that this is part of the shared human condition, that it's normal for human beings to suffer in this way, to struggle in this way. You might say to yourself, this is what it feels like when people feel lonely or people feel rejected or people feel uh, scared or whatever it might be. That's the common humanity part. I'm not alone. This is just part of being a human being. And then recognizing that, seeing if some kindness arises, maybe there's a spot on your body that's holding the tension and you wanna place a hand there as a sign of support, a gesture of support and understanding and care. Maybe letting the hand fill with kindness and kindness just gently seep into the body, the part that's holding the tension. Or maybe there are some words that you need to hear, words that would be comforting or validating or supportive. Something like, something like, I, I see you, I care about you, I'm here for you. You'll be okay. 
We'll get through this. You're not alone. And if you have any trouble finding words that you can say to yourself, you might think about something you would say to a dear friend in the same situation. Of course you felt that way. That's normal. I'm here for you. Or whatever it might be. And then see if you can say those same words to yourself. Offering yourself your own kindness. Then letting go of the words and of the gesture just resting for a moment, pausing inside your body and noticing any effects of the practice. Setting an intention to accept yourself and your practice just like this, even if only for this moment. And then when you feel ready, allowing the eyes to open if they've closed, just coming back more fully into the room. Oh, that was beautiful. So powerful and amazing how it's doesn't take any time at all, but it has can have this really profound, actually a softening. That's that's what it felt like to me. Softening. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's interesting because like you were saying earlier about the fist and, and the hand, and if you try and force, I think that's often what, what I might do. I noticed that I've had this pain in my shoulder and it's definitely been like a tension pain linking uh-huh. to, you know, difficult thoughts and feelings. And I might try and like, oh, I just, I want my shoulder to just soften, but it's not going to, unless I attend to the feeling and then soften then I just felt it melting away now but it's it's just taking a few minutes that's why I love that idea of the self-compassion break because it really doesn't take any time you could almost just do it in the loo you know at work nobody would know well, you can, in fact, one of my colleagues uh, who is an interventional radiologist, when he first met me, uh, he said, oh, you do that. You teach that self-compassion thing. He said, you know, I heard about that self-compassion break. And he said, you know, at work one day he made a mistake. And, you know, when an interventional radiologist makes a mistake, it can be a big deal. He said, I made a mistake. I felt terrible about it. I went into the bathroom and I thought, okay, I'm going to try that thing. And uh, he opened to, you know, this is a moment of suffering, you know, the mindfulness piece of it, this is really hard. And then the common humanity piece of it, you know, everybody makes mistakes, everybody feels bad when they make mistakes. And, uh, and the kindness piece of it, you know, and he said some kind words to himself. And he said, you know, in one minute, I felt so much better. So I kind of guided you through it in a slower way. But it's meant to be used as an on the go practice, Mm -hmm. right? When difficulty arises, you don't have to close your eyes. You can do it standing in line at the grocery store. You know? 
And it's amazing because it can get you right back on track. You know, if you can notice that you're you're struggling and then bring that practice in for yourself, it yeah. can really, really change outcomes in all sorts of ways. Even if you're having road rage or, you know, in a queue in the, you know, in the supermarket right. and feeling frustrated, you know, it really, really helps. So thank you. Right. And then if you soften the way that you, that you did, mm. now it's a little easier to turn to somebody else and mm. deal with whatever is going on there. Yeah, absolutely. So I would like at the end to ask you a question that I, I always ask um, at the end of the interview, because the idea behind the tenderness revolution is when we have this quality of tenderness for ourselves and others, we are using the three C's. So for me, um, they enable us to fully see the truth and the way that things are. And they are courage, curiosity, and compassion. And I just wanted to ask you at the end, if you had to choose one of these qualities that means the most to you in your life, what would you choose and why? Oh, well, um, I think I'm going to say that I would choose compassion, but I'm not choosing it over the others. I'm in choosing it because it includes the others. Yeah. So that, yes, that's, that's, that's what I would say is that uh, compassion does require and include courage. It, you must be curious to be compassionate. I mean, if we don't understand what's going on, it's hard to be compassionate. Mm -hmm. So, and then, yeah. So I think I would, that's where I would go. That's very much, they're very much tied together. Absolutely. And in all of the wonderful, wonderful work that you do. Yeah. I, I'm very glad that you've, you've, uh, you've put it that way. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been a really, just a really beautiful conversation. I've learned so much and I'm sure that all of our listeners will have to and I'm sure they'll all be feeling a lot better <laughs> however they were feeling before oh, well lovely to be with you Yvonne thank you such a pleasure to talk with you thank you for inviting me thank you thank you for listening to this episode of the tenderness revolution I hope you come back for more because my aim with this podcast is to help us become more aware of these moments of kindness and compassion and how they shape our lives and enable us to feel more connected to the world around us. for listening to this episode of the tenderness revolution i hope you come back for more because my aim with this podcast is to help us become more aware of these moments of kindness and compassion and how they shape our lives and enable us to feel more connected to the world around us